Hello, and welcome to The X Degree, a podcast where we delve deep into the abyss of the internet to find a strange connection between two random things. My name is Eric Stafford. Today we'll be looking into a connection between annuities, a form of long-term investment, and in and the American Southwest burger chain everyone in the rest of the country seems to need an opinion on when I tell them where I'm from. How much is a life worth? Like, if you were to die today, all right, sorry, we're starting off morbid here, but if you were to die today, how much wealth and money do you think you would be missing out on the rest of your life? Ever since money and income were really designed in human history, this was always a question. And the obvious derivation of this becomes life insurance. How much is your life worth? And if you die, how much wealth do you want to cover your family? Again, morbid, but here we are. This episode's gonna be kind of a downer, so heads up. But like pretty much anything in human life, we can make anything into a competition. And just like everything else, we can bet on how long someone's gonna live. And if we beat the house, we walk away with a nice winning until, well, you know. But this is the basic principle behind the history of the annuity. Today, these are highly regulated, complex, structured investments that are used as a retirement fund. But they aren't far from when they, where they began back in the 1600s, where it was just a straight bet against the government for how long you'd live. And the house didn't even know the odds. In a nutshell, an annuity works by you giving an insurance company or a government or a bookie a lump sum of money. Then every year after you give that lump sum, they pay back a percentage of the initial payment as long as you're alive. So say you invest you know, $1,000 in it with an agreement to get paid $70 back every single year. Today, there are so many ways this works and there are different benefits and downsides. I'm just gonna leave it there because I'm far from an expert. I mean. A thousand dollar annuity? What the fuck? It's a horrible idea. But back in the day, especially in England, annuities were sold by the crown, mainly as a way to raise funds to wage war. But people soon realized that at the fixed rates that they were paying back the investments, the government was just bleeding money. A 13 year old would receive the same lifetime annual payout as a 63 year old for the same lump sum investment. So going back to that example, a 13-year-old investing $1,000 when they're 13 gets $70 back every single year, same as a 63-year-old. 13-year-old is going to make a shit ton of money. So wealthy families started buying annuities for their children as a way to win some easy money in the future, while the crown blew all of the upfront investments on war and soon had massive debts on their hands. This is because probability was just something no one really considered back then. In our contemporary industrial mindset, everything is calculable by numbers and risk can be taken as measured probabilities. But back then, risk was just up to God. Gambling was never a game of numbers, just luck in how much the big man in the sky loved you. But soon people began to finally understand that there was a way to see how often you would actually roll double sixes. And these people began to tell their friends who became insanely wealthy by seemingly being able to predict the chaos of the universe. Until one of these guys began to work for the house. Enter Edmund Haley. Years before he made predictions on the, for the return of his namesake Comet and a slew of other fascinating works, he was an editor for one of the first scientific journals. He was well aware of the ideas of probability and gambling and philosophy, but he wondered if there was a way to apply this theory to the gambling of people's lives. Could the government still offer annuities, 
but not lose all of the investment and then some in the payouts. Haley heard of a rumor that there was a town in Eastern Europe that kept meticulous notes of the births and deaths of all the citizens for generations, and he found a way to his answer. Haley took the data from the town of Breslau, now Warsaw in Poland, and was able to create the first actuarial table. From this, Haley was able to, within a certain degree, predict how likely a person was to die in the next year at any age. From this, he was able to work out with the crown to tailor annuities so that if a person lived the average lifespan, they'd get the exact value of their annuity back. If they died early, house gets to keep the leftovers. Live longer, get a nice little profit. Science is just the ultimate narc. Now, here's where I'm honest and fess up. I don't speak Polish. And for the amount of times that I'm going to say Warsaw now, I'm actually going to pull an American and keep calling it Breslau, the German name for the town, because for the time we're going to be talking about the city, it was actually under German rule. Sorry, Poland, please don't get mad at me. But Breslau was a settlement along the River Oder since the 6th century, and we can delve into its fascinating history of medieval Poland with Mongol invasions, King Henry IV, the good, and a little bit of plague, but we're going to focus on the late 1800s when the unification of Germany took place, creating the German Empire, complete with fancy mustaches and pointy hats. At the time of unification in 1871, Breslau became the sixth largest city in the empire. Soon after, a large works project to defend the city began, including the construction of the Technological University, now the Warsaw University of Technology. And yeah, I'm biased to technology schools here. I mean, come on, I went to one. But this technical college was just an expansion of the Breslau University, which was transplanted from Frankfurt down the River Oder back in 1811, in which the Germans were very happy to have back after the unification. For generations, the university was a leading research institution in Eastern Europe, and the university drew a multi-ethnic population to the city, making it one of the major Jewish communities in the region. But fast forward to 1912, when the university's psychiatry department, then run by Alios, I think I said that right, Alzheimer of unfortunate fame. But a faculty member in this department was a German named William Stern, a pioneer in forensic psychology, who asserted the fallibility of memories in eyewitnesses, albeit pretty misogynistically. But we want to follow in his contribution to the intelligent quotient, or IQ. Stern suggested a change to the mathematical formula for outputting IQ that we still use to this day for the most part. But IQ has a weird and, hey, to break to you guys, pretty shitty past. So here we go. The intelligent quotient was a tool created by French psychologists Alfred Binet and Theodore Simon to assess the mental development of children. Beginning in 1899, the French government made it mandatory for all children to attend school from ages 6 to 14. With this new mandate, schools quickly realized that there were some discrepancies in the mental developments of children. With classrooms full and learning somewhat standardized, some students were falling behind at no fault of their own and needed special education assistance that was tailored to their mental capabilities. Enter Binet, who developed standardized tests to determine the, quote, mental age of a child by delivering a series of increasingly difficult questions or tasks. If a student's mental age masked their physical age, they were determined to be normal or average. If it was below, they were determined to be developmentally abnormal and required special education. The tests were never really designed to look for intelligence above the mental age of the child. 
Through his development of this test, Binet remarked that the standardized testing and inherent limitations, and also noted that there were so many variations in childhood mental development, ranging from testing environments to social environments and the variability in backgrounds, leading him to believe and later stress that these tests were only useful to measure development in students with comparable backgrounds and should not be used in a generalized way, mainly because that's not what they were intended for. To quote Professor Stephen Hawkins, people who boast about their IQ are losers. But one reason Binet was so adamant about the proliferation of IQ was its adoption in the United States. Not about identifying children who need special educational assistance, but for separating those who were superior from inferior because of one asshole named H.H. Goddard, a champion of the eugenics movement. All right, just so we can get off this guy, fuck H.H. Goddard. If you want to hear about him, how much of a shit heel he was, be my guest. Yeah, he advocated for a special education of blind and deaf children, but all you need to know is that he translated the Binet-Simon IQ test into English and used it to justify white supremacy and to advocate for strict immigration restrictions, segregation, and compulsory sterilization. Quick depressing sidebar, the eugenics movement was so pervasive and accepted into U.S. law and culture that in 1927, the Supreme Court of the United States upheld the use of compulsory sterilization used on a woman named Carrie Buck. At the time, Buck was, inst- was an institutionalized patient who was deemed a genetic threat to society and was sterilized against her will after beca- she became pregnant through rape. So yeah, the Supreme Court upheld the lawfulness of the Virginia Sterilization Act. The act allowed for further laws and legal allowances perpetrated against predominantly women and notably in Black, Latina, and Native American populations. We got so good at this that in Mein Kampf, Hitler endorsed and hoped to implement eugenic legislation just like the U.S. had done. The most recent compulsory sterilizations on record in the U.S. were between 2006 and 2010, here in California prisons, where 148 female prisoners were non-consensually sterilized. But, now that we're all sad and depressed, want me to ruin something else for you? Do you like Frosted Flakes? What about Rice Krispies? Cheez-Its? Pringles? Pop-Tarts? Yeah. Kellogg was founded by uber eugenicists, the Kellogg brothers. But let's focus on the less businessmen of the pair, John Harvey Kellogg. A radical Seventh-day Adventist and health reformation pioneer, Kellogg was actually at the leading edge of gut health and advocated for living and eating clean. On top of eating bland food to decrease sexual appetites, Cornflakes were originally manufactured to be so boring and bland that they make you not want to masturbate. And later, Kellogg himself was one of the first to state that, quote, breakfast is the most important meal of the day, after his brother began marketing and selling cornflakes to the masses. But Kellogg's major impact on society was his time as the medical director of the Battle Creek Sanitarium in Michigan. The sanitarium became a health destination for the rich and famous all over the world. Based on Kellogg's theories of diet, exercise, microflora, and connection to nature in, quote, biological living. Based on the Seventh-day Adventist principles of a vegetarian and coffee, tobacco, and alcohol-free diet, Kellogg also pushed for bland foods to quell the fluttering of the loins, developed a new way to make peanut butter, and was an old-school detoxer. 
and also really liked performing circumcisions. Again, quelling to need to whack it. And for the ladies, he called for the use of our magic sauce from Joseph Lister last episode, carbolic acid. Just bathe your clitoris in that and bye-bye the need to rub one out. Or enjoy sex. Like, ever. Yeah, this dude fucking sucked. Visitors to the sanitarium would eat low-protein, high-fiber foods, sometimes alongside laxatives, to clear out pathogenic bacteria from their GI tract. Kellogg also recommended breathing exercises and marching to stimulate digestion and pushed for sunbathing and exposure to light. All things that are, you know, kind of still in vogue right now. He also believed in the wonderful probiotic benefits of yogurt, advocating for the consumption of a pint of yogurt, half ingested orally, um... The other half applied via enema to the other end of the tube. Give, he used the term squeaky clean intestine. So, yeah. And as wacky as this place sounds to us, it was popular as hell. Visitors to the sanitarium included former President William Howard Taft, Arctic explorer Roald Amundsen, economist Irving Fisher, playwright George Bernard Shaw, activist Sojourner Truth, Thomas Edison, Henry Ford, and our next stop, Amelia Earhart. Earhart was first introduced to flight at the age of 10 at the Iowa State Fair, where her father tried to show his daughters the wonders of flight. Reportedly, Amelia was unmoved and asked her father if she could go back to the merry-go-round. But throughout young adulthood, Earhart aspired to follow in the footsteps of successful women making headway in male-dominated fields. After working as a nurse's aide in Toronto during the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, Earhart and a friend attended a local air show, where a pilot noticed Earhart and her friend alone in a clearing and fake-dived bobbed them as part of the show. Earhart reportedly didn't move as the plane pulled up and buzzed just above her head. Finally, in December 1920, Earhart got her first taste of flight at Dougherty Field in Long Beach. Immediately after, she worked as many odd jobs as she could to raise the funds to attend flying lessons. Under the direction of Anita Snook, Earhart worked tirelessly in honestly shitty conditions on broken equipment. But just over a year and a half after her first lesson, she broke the altitude record for a female pilot by climbing up to 14,000 feet and was the 16th woman to receive her pilot's license in May 1923. As Earhart navigated financial troubles and having to unenroll from Columbia University, Charles Lindbergh completed the first solo transatlantic flight in 1927. Soon after, pilot Amy Guest expressed interest in becoming the first female to complete, complete the trip, but bowed out soon after proposing the idea. But the flying world was swept by the idea, and Earhart was asked if she would like to accompany Wilmer Stoltz in his transatlantic flight as a flight engineer. On June 17, 1928, Amelia Earhart became the first woman to fly across the Atlantic, and her celebrity exploded. Earhart wrote a book, went on speaking tours, met with presidents, was a promoter of athletic and functional women's clothing, was one of the first proponents of commercial air travel, and even was a spokesperson for Lucky Strike cigarettes, the profits of which she donated to Richard Byrd's South Pole exploration. On May 20th, 1932, Earhart left alone from Harbor Grace in Newfoundland in an attempt to mimic Lindbergh's solo flight and was aiming for Paris. But Earhart was forced to land after 14 hours just north of Derry in Northern Ireland, becoming the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean. Reportedly, her landing was eyewitnessed by two farmhands who approached her and asked, how far have you flown? Earhart replied, from America. 
After a series of record-setting flights, Earhart began planning a circumnavigation flight while working at Purdue University. Her planned route would be the longest circumnavigation route, covering 29,000 miles. Her first attempt began in Oakland, California, and passed through Honolulu, but on, on takeoff towards the utterly tiny Howard Island in the middle of the Pacific, they suffered a failure during takeoff and had to scrap the trip. On May 20th, 1937, the second attempt began, this time heading east. Earhart and navigator Fred Noonan flew from Oakland across the southern United States to Miami. There, they hopped down the coast of South America and crossed the Atlantic to Africa. Following close to the equator, they made their way across Africa and the Arabian Peninsula and across India into Southeast Asia. Down through Indonesia, and after briefly stopping in Australia, they made their way to New Guinea before embarking across the Pacific. On July 2nd, Earhart and Noonan left Lea, New Guinea, for Howard Island, but they never arrived. And here, I'm just going to leave this one alone because now we get into radio communication mishaps, navigation, lots of theories, lots of technical things that I don't understand. Um, I just don't wanna get into it. Uh, she was pronounced dead on January 5th, 1939 though. But in our journey, we need to look at the end of Earhart's first journey and penultimate goal of her fa fatal journey, Honolulu, Hawaii, specifically Ford Island in the middle of Pearl Harbor, where the airstrip was, that was her goal, and where she crashed the first time. Ford Island was the mooring site of many of the warships bombed during the Pearl Harbor attacks in 1941 that brought the United States into World War II. But unfortunately, I'm not a guy in his 60s or the History Channel, so I don't really want to talk about World War II that much. I already said the Nazis loved how we did eugenics. Don't really want to open the can of worms about the Pacific Theater here. But what I will say is that the decades after World War II, Ford Island, also known as Poca Ali Eilana, I think Eilana, was open to more non-military non flights, but the island remained occupied by military personnel and their families, whose only access to the rest of o Oahu was ferry, until 1998, when the Admiral Clary Bridge was completed as part of Senator Daniel Inouye's plans for the rebirth of the island. Also, please go and read about Senator Inouye. He was a World War II veteran who lost his right arm while in combat in Italy, received the Medal of Honor, was the first U.S. representative from Hawaii when the islands achieved statehood in 1959 and served uninterrupted as a House representative and a senator until his death in 2012. He is an absolutely amazing figure in American history. But I want to talk about the bridge, mainly because it was finally a way to connect those living on Ford Island with the main arteries of the island of Oahu. This included the Kamehameha Highway, which was a series of highways connecting rural and suburban Oahu, like Ford Island, and the North Shore to Oahu, and also the Hawaii Interstate Freeways, which, as the YouTube creator CGP Gray points out, are intrastate interstates, because there's no bordering state to Hawaii. The U.S. interstate system may be one of the most fascinating organized infrastructure projects, at least to me. Originally planned as an ad hoc way to help states improve their roadways, the Federal Aid Road Act of 1916 fell flat due to budget reallocation during the First World War, but soon after, in 1919, the U.S. Army sent a convoy of military vehicles from coast to coast to assess the difficulty of mobilizing the U.S. military and found a depressing state of the roads between Washington, D.C. and San Francisco. On the trip was a 28-year-old Lieutenant Colonel, Dwight Eisenhower, who saw firsthand the difficulties of crossing the country in 62 days. 
After several revamps of the Federal Roads Project, the interstate system as we know it today was finally set in course in 1956, when now President Dwight Eisenhower signed the Federal Aid Highway Act. Inspired by the Reichsautobahn system in Germany, see, tear for tat with the Nazis still, we're doing great, Eisenhower wanted a sprawling in interconnected series of divided highways reaching from every corner of the country. And it also allowed quick mobilization of anti-nuclear missiles to defend us during the Cold War. America, allowing military culture to pervade literally everything in our society. Funded mostly by a gasoline tax, the states quickly jumped on the funding and began pouring roads. The first state to finish all of its major sections was Nebraska in 1974. And there are still plans to this day for expansion and closing of a couple gaps. But every interstate follows similar rules for speed limiting, traffic control, and maintenance standards. And I know, this is just kind of for fun. There's a widely, but not to the T followed numbering system for the US interstate highways. The major interstate freeways are double digits ending in zero going east to west and decreasing in value from north to south. I-90 goes from Seattle to Boston, all the way down to I-10 from Santa Monica to Jacksonville. Then you have double digits ending in five going north-south with I-5 on the west coast and I-95 on the east coast. The only exceptions to this are the lack of I-50 and I-60 and the fact that you kind of have to imagine I-5 going from Mexico to Canada through California, Oregon, and Washington has a leading zero to kind of fit with the double digits, but eh, no one really cares. But other than the majors, we also have the minors, consisting of three digits and a series of rules determining the numbering based on what major they're branching off from, if they return, spur off, or connect to another major. And then there are mediums, double digits, evens going east-west, odds going north-south. And yes, exceptions abound, and I will point you to CGP Gray's video on YouTube and all of its amazing glory. But as you can imagine, with a works project like this cutting through the American heartland, there were many toes that needed to be stepped on to throw four-lane highways down. Eminent domain was cited for many constructions of the interstate system, and one such example of this was the 10 freeway, going from Santa Monica, California to Jacksonville, Florida, as it passes through Baldwin Park, a suburb of Los Angeles. In 1954, during the initial construction of the 10, a small burger joint was forced to move their tiny stand 75 feet away to make room for the new freeway, the original In-N-Out. Founded in 1948, In-N-Out has been a Southland staple for generations and my personal go-to for road trip meals. I've been hearing the damn jingles on radio and TV my whole life and learning about animal style when I was in junior high was absolutely life-changing. Now reaching into Arizona, Nevada, Utah, Colorado, Oregon, and even Texas, the double-double and crossed palm trees seem to garner love for those who enjoy it and utter shock and disgust from people who don't. I swear, I was in Fort Lauderdale, Florida a few years ago at a coffee shop. I was talking to the owner as he made my drink on a kind of slow day, and I mentioned I was from, an, from LA on a business trip. In response, he said, and I, this is true, this is burnt into my memory. Oh man, I went to LA a few years ago. I had a great time, but... uh." I don't, I don't want to offend you, but I didn't really like In-N-Out. Like, he was telling me he loved meeting my family at Christmas, but thought my grandma was a bitch. And I honestly don't care. It's fast food. I had a friend in high school whose dad owned one of the local franchises and hired a ton of my friends to work there. Yeah, they print Bible verses all over their packaging and cups, and there's some legal things that are going on. It's, they're a large company. It happens. And they have a pretty sizable charitable donation. 
But it's just, God, it's just fast food. Like it or not, it's convenient as hell. Well, there it is. A mathematical, horrifying, and globe-trotting trip that's one way you can connect annuities to In-N-Out. Thank you so much for listening. Special thank you to Jacob Goldstein's book, Money, The True Story of a Made-Up Thing, Vox and Adam Conover's investigations about Kellogg and his hatred, of masturbation and love of circumcision, CGP Gray's The Interstate's Forgotten Code, and the double-double with grilled onions, fries, and a chocolate vanilla shake of the internet, Wikipedia. Also, yeah, I mean... I'm going to be that guy, that podcast guy. Can you like and write, like, like, subscribe and review this? I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I don't care. Actually, no, it's fine. Attention, I wish I went down but didn't. Another visitor to the Battle Creek Sanitarium was Richard Halliburton, a, traveler, a travel writer who recreated the sea voyages of Odysseus, witnessed the mar- marriage of the Emperor of China, swam the length of the Panama Canal, retraced the path of Hernan Cortez through Mexico, flew around the world in a biplane, and recreated the crossing of the Alps with elephants. Halliburton disappeared in 1939 while attempting to sail a Chinese junk out of Hong Kong to San Francisco for the Golden Gate International Expo. Guess, guess he could have used one more yogurt enema. Stay safe out there.